Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Christian Cison coming to you live from the Kill Room at the third Friday's area of the office. Uh, my guest today for the Turkey Day edition of the podcast is Andrea Abudaya. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Andrea, you were on my show about four months ago, and we talked about this landmark, crazy, ridiculous decision to hair versus yield a taxi and it discussed the implications of finding a schedule loss of use with an LWEC, without an LWEC, uh, non-schedule permanency classification, what the meaning of award was in terms of the parlance of our industry. And we had a show basically trying to predict how it would play out before um, judges and board panels uh, in what we do. And, you know, four months have passed, and we've seen a little bit of an update as to how judges are interpreting this decision. Uh, so we're going to go over exactly how we got to this point, what's going on, and what we think we can do to make things a little better for our clients. So uh, to everyone listening, uh, this is the Third Friday's podcast. It's a 201 level, or it's designed to be a 201 level uh, educational series that talks about the issues discussed in our Monday webinar series. So that series ha- deals with um, more background and beginning first steps to understanding key topics and concepts. This upcoming Monday, we're going to talk about how we evaluate exposure when you have a slew case or when you have an LWAC case. What does the math look like and how is it based on average weekly wage, things like that. Uh, For this 201 level series, we're discussing the specific sub-concepts attached to the outer underlying concept and how it impacts the way we practice, the way we litigate, and how we use that leverage to settle cases. So before this decision even comes down, in a pre-to-hair world, right, we had a, a situation where LWEC would control, right? Uh, if LWEC was contribute, uh, contributing to a permanent partial disability, uh, a back, a neck, uh, psych, anything like that, uh, and there was some residual permanent disability, slews would not happen, right? Right. So before this decision came out that everybody was saying was going to revolutionize workers' compensation forever, um, if claimant were if the claimant had a permanent disability to a non-schedulable site, then he would not be entitled to the schedule loss of use award. So if you had residual impairments to the neck and back, you wouldn't get any payments at all if you were working. And to be completely honest, it, it did have a weird distinction based on work status, right? So right. if you had a case with schedule and non-schedule and you were working, the claimant would be pushing for the slews while we would be pushing for non-schedule residual permanent impairment. Right, right? which typically we try to avoid because the neck and back pay more. Right. And, you know, in our webinar series on Monday, we'll go over why uh, or if we really can differentiate between someone falling off a scaffold and having multiple back surgeries as a result of it or a back sprain because you bent down too quickly uh, while you were a bank teller. Uh, You know, but those, you know, those... That, that's a soapbox issue for another day, right? So Tahir comes out, and everybody is buzzing, like you said. It's going gonna, it's gonna to revolutionize the industry. Uh, you know, 
to me, it looked like it was only going to muddy the waters even more. I think when we discussed it back in July, it wasn't really guaranteed that any prediction would be correct. Like, there's just different ways you could interpret this, right? And that's correct. And that still seems to a certain extent to be true. Okay. Yeah. So let's go over, like, the contradictions, right? Like, I'm actually looking at the decision right here where I'm using three different colors, like like I'm in law school for some reason, uh, to differentiate uh, the contradictions taken by the third department, right? And the first sentence says, absent a determination of the extent, if any, of the claimant's lost wagering capacity due to his non-schedule permanent partial disability classification, the board did not err to the extent that it found that claimant is not present, presently entitled to a slew award. So what that tells me, just that sentence alone, tells me that if claimant has non-schedule permanent partial disability and it contributes to loss of wage earning capacity, then slews are still impossible, right? Just that sentence alone would say that, right? Yes. Okay. Now let's go to the second sentence in yellow. Uh, Claimant may ultimately receive an, an SLU award notwithstanding his non-schedule classification for the injuries that he sustained in the underlying work-related accident. Now, am I going crazy, or is that the exact opposite of the first sentence that I just read? Well, I can't attest as to whether or not you're crazy, but that is the exact opposite. <laughs> all right, all right. That's a topic for another day. I get it. But, but right, that's the exact opposite, It's a complete right? contradiction. It's the first sentence is saying you can't have a schedule loss of use if you have a non-schedule classification that impacts your loss of wage earning capacity. The second sentence says that the claimant may receive a schedule loss of use not, award non-withstanding a non-schedule classification. Okay, so now we have two sentences in the same paragraph that contradict each other yes. in our eyes. The third sentence then seems to kind of take a stand, but, you know, as we'll see later in the podcast, the, the waters are still muddy, right? The third sentence in orange, uh, the claimant may not, however, receive both an SLU award and non-schedule award for the impairments that he sustained in the same work-related accident. Now, when we talked about that specific sentence in July, we attributed the word award to money. Right, so on the surface that makes sense, right? You can't get double compensation for being classified because you have a three C to your back and a twenty percent schedule to your knee. Right, right. That's exactly the case, and we interpreted award to mean money based on other cases that were cited to in this decision. Okay, so we predicted that this would confuse everybody, and. What we've seen from judges is actually kind of across the line position, at least, as to how they're interpreting it, right? So tell us a little bit about what you've learned as to how judges are interpreting this case. Okay, so the judges are taking a specific position. When we have discussed cases before hearings not attached to a specific case that would appear before them, they're interpreting this decision to mean that if you get hurt and your injury involves your neck, back, and your shoulder, for example, 
you can get classified as having a permanent impairment to your neck and your back. You can get a loss of wage earning capacity awarded due to those injuries. But if you're not losing any time and you're not getting an award, you could still get the SLU award, which would be payable immediately. Okay. And then what happens, you know, in your case, right, the claimant's working, claimant gets the schedule. Yes. After the schedule runs out, right, like that last week, what happens? If claimant ever loses time from work again due to these injuries, he would be entitled to the loss of wage earning capacity awards with the caveat that the carrier does have the right to take credit for the entire schedule loss of use before the claimant is entitled to any outlook awards. Which is, it, it's, it's a li- it's, well, it's definitely confusing, but I, I, I actually see kind of the merits behind it because in a wage replacement system, the fact that if that 20% or 30% schedule is real, like that's, that's a legitimate permanent injury, mm-hmm. then whether or not the claimant is working shouldn't affect whether he should be compensated for the loss of use, right? That's just the baseline theory behind his schedule. So I get that. And then I also understand that if there is an LWEC that the claimant can then take advantage of afterwards, it's problematic but with that caveat that you mentioned, if we can take credit for the schedule that we paid, that also kind of makes sense too. I think there are problems lined up with how we get to that decision, right? Because right. Uh, workers' compensation uh, in general uh, is designed for parties to come together and, and uh, make agreements with each other as to SLU, as to ELWEC, as to indemnity-only settlements, full and final settlements, even you know anything, right? It's designed so that parties can come together and make an agreement where the agreement makes sense. And to me, this decision makes little, if any, sense that parties are now in a place where they're kind of don't, they kind of don't know what to do because what they've grown up doing is litigate, litigate, litigate until you get to a point where both parties finally reach an agreement. But if there's no baseline to really work off of in how you litigate, how, are you, how can you actually be settling with the right theory behind that? It, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to me that this decision is impacting settlements uh, and the ways that SLUs and LX are now found. So the fact that there is a mode or a method that judges are now using based on this decision, and it's across the board, it's kind of scary because we know – that the Court of Appeals is probably going to be talking about this issue very uh, very soon, right? And the judges know that this is going up to the Court of Appeals, and they know that there's a pretty good chance that this is going to be overturned. And if this is overturned, they don't want their decisions to be affected by the new change of law. Which I get. I get, right? So they are trying to take sort of like a cop-out almost, where most of the claimant's doctors submitted opinions as to schedule loss of use and permanency before this decision came out. In order for the claimant to be able to get their schedule loss of use determination, they were typically finding no permanency attributable to the neck and back. So for oh, now, right. the of course, two... because they, they knew that the claimant wanted the schedule. Right. They were operating based on what the law has been for the past however many years. Um, it's always been that way. And the doctors know the law pretty well, actually. <laughs> right. Um, so they were finding no permanency attributable to the neck and back, but here's a 20% schedule loss of use to the shoulder, for example. And the judges have been 
before the hearing, encouraging us to resolve it by explaining the law and these like drastic measures of you're looking at a situation where I'm going to find an LWEC and I'm going to find a schedule loss of use and the claimant will get all of the benefits so you should come to the table and resolve this. But then at the actual hearing, they're taking the much more conservative view of claimant's doctor saying there's no permanency to the neck and back so that's what I'm finding. And that puts the claimant in a position where they can't appeal because it's their own doctor. Right. And it's putting us in a position where do we want to appeal and reopen the issue of the neck and back if when, all... Right, when theoretically they could then go out of work and... Get know, more money. Get more money after we argue the position that it is the neck and back. It's a good right. point. Uh, I think that we do need some clarification. And, and, and you've actually heard some rumors... Uh, from practitioners in the area about having everything go through, like a, an LWEC situation or classification, right? Or everything be a schedule loss of use, right? Right. There have been some rumors that everything should be an LWEC determination because people should only get awards if their impairment causes them to lose time from work or to have a reduced earning capacity. But that would entail, well, that would entail people actually coming together and rewriting the whole <laughs> Um, situation. So if that is going to happen, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And, uh, you know, we always come to this weird differentiation where, um, you know, someone's shoulder can be really, really affected by an accident and they might, you know, lose 40% of use of it uh, in industry terms. And they might be treated differently from someone who has a neck sprain because they just like, you know, jerk their neck the wrong way for right. five seconds and it, they felt like a spasm. Uh, and that's the extreme example of why SLUs and LOX kind of are in conflict with each other. Um, and I think it's kind of why both parties tries to use, try, try to use them against each other when uh, it can. So we know that, you know, the Court of Appeals is probably going to comment on it. Uh, you know, this is too much of a gray area. I'm just always wondering, why can't we lean on the first sentence that we talked about where it says, if any of the LWEC is due to non-scheduled permanent partial disability, then the board didn't err to the extent that it found a slew. Like that is actually more in line with how workers' compensation has been for years. That's exactly how it's been for years. And there's a PPD. There shouldn't be a slew. And just it takes two sentences to rewrite how we do things? So the conversation has veered as to what's the difference between LWEC and classification. And classification means a permanent injury to the neck and back. LWEC takes into consideration work status and vocational factors. And that's a distinction that... I guess matters in this case. Well, sure, and and let's even go in further. Uh, Can someone have an LWEC without non-schedule or even schedule without any permanent medical impairment? No. Right? So if that's the case, then for someone, you know, conversely, if someone has an LWEC, then you have to have at least a 1% permanent disability to something. Right. And then if you have a 1% permanent partial disability to that something, and that something is a neck or a back, then you shouldn't get a slew, according to the first sentence. One sentence later says that basically says that if, oh, but if you're working, then yes, you can get a slew. And to put people in different boats based on work status is 
it's actually it doesn't make sense it, it really doesn't it doesn't classify or maybe i don't want to use classify because you're 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 right you're, people are trying to def- redefine these words but we're now compensating people based on whether they're working or not well i think it's trying to cure that in a way right because if you were if you were working the whole time with your neck injury before and you also hurt your shoulder, but the neck injury is severe enough that it has a permanent impairment to the neck, you wouldn't get anything for your shoulder. While people who maybe sprained their pinky and, you know what I mean, lost very little time from work might still get some award. So what this is trying to do is basically the way that it's been explained to me is not punish people for returning to work. So they can still get that schedule loss of use. Because before they were being penalized even if they were more injured. So if you only hurt your shoulder, you're getting your slew. If I hurt my shoulder and my neck and my back and I have a brain injury but somehow managed to muddle through and continue to get to work, I still <laughs> don't get... Listen, I am that one claimant that will do that. I still wouldn't get the schedule loss of use award. What they're saying now is if you were able to return to work despite the neck, back, and brain injury, you should at least get your schedule loss of use award. I get that, but doesn't that also say that if you hurt your back but you love your job, you really should also say that you hurt your shoulder? Yes. <laughs> that's 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 the dichotomy we have. It's crazy. But, but, that is so crazy. Come on, we've always seen that, though, I, right? I'm not like saying Like the situation that. <laughs> where somebody gets punched in the neck and then they say, oh, my hip also hurts. Right. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm not saying that we don't see that all the time. I'm just saying that this decision, right, if it's, if it's being made under the theory that it's supposed to fix, like, how you're being compensated, it's actually not doing that because it's, it's just using a different factor – to lean on, but you know we've seen we we've seen judges make the decisions. We're going to wait to see how board panels react to it uh, and see if there's a different analysis being put into play. And you know this time next year we're we're probably going to do this again and see see what decisions are out there. Uh, if the court of appeals has ruled on the issue, uh, that will be an update as well. Um, but I think the only thing we've solved here is that. There's just more of a mess, right? And there are maybe the only thing we've solved here is nothing because there's more of a mess, right? That sounds about right. Okay, so that's out of the way. Uh, we have the webinar this Monday, and that's going to talk about uh, the background and the beginning steps of evaluating exposure on your claim. So uh, differentiating between a SLU and an LWEC, making sure that you know what is what, where you can take credit for prior payments, where you can't. Uh, that is going to be this Monday. I really wanted to talk to you about uh, virtual hearings for this second half of the podcast because uh, Jamaica, Queens is very near and dear to our hearts uh, in a way that's not sarcastic at all. Um, but it's the last – it seems like it's the last bastion before this pro- this movement really, really gets its like foot in, in through the door and smashes it down because – it's the biggest hearing point by far. Most claims go through Jamaica, at, or more, more claims go through Jamaica than any other hearing point. And it's also seen the most resistance from practitioners in that hearing point. And lo and behold, the rumors are true. Jamaica Queens is going virtual in a very, very short couple of weeks. That, is that true? As of December 3rd, all okay. Jamaica hearings will be virtual. And everybody here in Lois Land is cheering, uh, jumping up and down because we can save our clients, we can save you guys a, a lot of money in, in being able to handle claims in the office 
while also saving us time so that we can go through your other claims and providing the customized defense that we really provide to you. Um, talk to me about virtual hearings, at least as it relates to the vibe in Jamaica. Like, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of techno- te- technological issues that kind of delayed Jamaica from becoming virtual. Is that true? That's correct. And the Jamaica Hearing Board has been working um, to try to fix those issues. It appears that they have been resolved, which is why they're moving forward with the launch date of December 3rd for the virtual hearings. Um, so far, people aren't very happy about <laughs> going virtual. The judges are very hesitant because they believe that it is going to reduce pre-conferencing matters, which is an important aspect of what we do. I, and I do agree with that. I think that that's something that we do want to get out there uh, for cases that the parties can work out at the hearing. You know, you know, the eleventh hour, really. The you know, sometimes it's the twenty-fifth, where it's after the hearing time. We we ask for a short, short adjournment to kind of work things out. Uh, that's not going to be available because once you enter the hearing point, it's all—it's basically on the record, uh, and you're litigating the issue before the judge. But I don't think that it prevents people from settling. You know, it definitely I, you know, doesn't. Like it, it should encourage our adversaries to come speak with us and respond to the 50,000 follow-up emails we send about settlement before the hearing, shouldn't it? And also, as you know, and the, uh, of course it should. People should be responding to our emails, please, and thank you. <laughs> um, but it also, if you've, you've done virtual hearings in other locations, the phone right. number is something that should be provided, and the judges theoretically are saying, call your adversary, speak about it before you even come into the part. So if you're proactive with your files, like we try to do here, we can call them. And I have, when I've done virtual hearings elsewhere, and I have pre-conference matters right before they go on so that we can have a private conversation. And that's a great point because right, that's, that's what people say is going to be the downfall of virtual hearings is that pre-conferencing thing. But if we can take that extra step and pre-conference it before the pre-conference, right, then we can achieve that goal and make virtual hearings even stronger because now you're uh, helping the claimant and carrier by not making – well, the claimant by not having making him wait in the waiting room. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the employer by, you know, really just conserving resources and making sure that uh, we're there for that case, right? And it also saves the travel time. Even if the resources weren't an issue, spending two hours traveling is not the most productive use of our time. We can review our files and be more active in them if we're in the office to review them. That's right. People don't necessarily love me as much if I have to go to Buffalo, but if I can go to Buffalo from my computer, I'm more lovable, right? <laughs> so uh, as if there was you know, more, more to give. But... That's really where we are right now, and I, and I really love that Jamaica is finally taking the step because it's 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 really a justification that the that the program is moving forward. Um, I always foresee this thing being mandatory in the future that they're going to say if you want to appear, you have to uh, appear virtually or do have some technological check-in or appearance aspect to it. So I don't think that, you know, the the backlash of it is really, you know, I I think it's a little misplaced. But uh, I understand why people may not want to uh, really go with it. I just think ultimately this is where we're going to be. And 
we can actually use it to our advantage in bo- in from both parties. Even though, even if you choose to appear in person, I want to make sure that everybody understands you still have to log in virtually. Right. And you still get called right. virtually, so they are trying to push people in that direction. Right. At the same time, the judges are putting a lot of asterisk to the virtual um, hearing <laughs> situation. If you have, uh, they're encouraging us. Encouraging? Not mandatory, but very strongly encouraged that if we have a witness coming or if we have anybody coming, we be there in person. And that's, that's a good distinction. I actually, I actually agree with the nudge uh, from a law judge about that because uh, that's going to be something where we want to go to the hearing for. We want to sh- shepherd a witness, uh, make them feel comfortable, uh, and answer any last-minute questions right. that they may have. We don't want them to appear in person where, you know, your friendly defense attorney is, like, saying hi from a screen. Uh, it's just not uh, – the service that we provide, it's just an option for our clients if they want to conserve those resources. And I will note that we are allowed to appear virtually with the witness in our office if the witness would feel more comfortable in doing it in that way. Also true. They have already taken other steps, right? One of the biggest concerns before was about last-minute submissions. The new rule is any submission that needs to be considered at the hearing needs to be viewable before the hearing. Which is more makes fair. Sense. Makes right. sense. There's a new web upload function that can get it in quicker than normal. Um, from what I've my limited use of it so far, it seems to be working. Yes. I haven't seen too much uh, of a uh, really too much of an issue with getting documents uploaded. Uh, we'll see if that continues to be like that, but you're right. I think that rule is actually very beneficial to us, especially in situations such as attachment to the labor market. Because if I'm being handed 15 pages in the middle of the hearing, it's kind of hard to, like, do an effective cross-examination when I'm also reviewing the documents as the hearing is going. It's not fair that we have to do that. Well, some, that we've had to do that. And some judges will make you do it. Even right. if you request a short adjournment and you show them and say, hi, I was just handed 15 pages. If you want to give me at least 20 minutes to review these, the judges are like, nah, let's go. <laughs> I believe in you. And I'm like, no. You're, you're better than that. You can you can do it now. And I'm sure I can, but I don't feel it can. should be right. obli- we should be <laughs> obligated to do so. So this new function of the web upload and this new requirement that they be viewable before will allow us to better prepare for that cross-examination. And the same is true for those last minute, oh, I haven't had up-to-date medicals for six months, but here you go, um, situations. They have to be viewable before the hearing. Right. So bottom line is it's a nice nice movement. It's a nice progression. Uh, it's, good, it's good to take advantage of the technology that we have. Uh, and I'm actually proud of the board for really investing in this project and putting it to fruition at such a fast pace. Uh, Jamaica's now virtual starting in a couple of weeks, uh, and there'll be two hearing points left. Hopefully those two will become virtual uh, early next year, and then we'll be off and running. You can see this face and that face through a computer screen uh, just like you're doing right now uh, and just really appreciate the service that we provide, custom defense, uh, and it's not going to be like anything else you will get from anybody, okay? That's the point we're trying to make here. Uh, for Andrea Abudaya, my name is Christian Cisan. Thank you for listening to Third Fridays, and I'm reminding you to defend from day one.